Book Two, Chapter Seven of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Seven Eric Erickson. Robert sprang across the dividing chasm, clasped Erickson's hand in both of his, looked up into his face, and stood speechless. Erickson returned the salute with a still kindness, tender and still. His face was like a grey morning sky of summer, from whose level cloud fields rain will fall before noon. So it was you, he said, playing the violin so well. I was doing my best, answered Robert. But eh, Mr. Erickson, I would have done better if I had known you was hearkening. You couldn't do better than your best, returned Eric, smiling. Ay, but your best might I grow better, you know, persisted Robert. Come into my room, said Erickson. This is Friday night, and there is nothing but chapel tomorrow, so we'll have talk instead of work. In another moment they were seated by a tiny coal fire in a room, one side of which was the slope of the roof, with the large low skylight in it looking seawards. The sound of the distant waves, unheard in Robert's room, beat upon the drum of the skylight, through all the world of mist that lay between it and them, dimly, vaguely, but ever and again with the swell of gathered force that made the distant tumult doubtful no more. I'm sorry I have nothing to offer you, said Erickson. You remind me of Peter and John at the beautiful gate of the temple, returned Robert, attempting to speak English like the northerner, but breaking down as his heart got the better of him. Eh, Mr. Erickson, if ye knew what it is to me to see the face of ye, ye would not spake like that. Just let me sit and look at ye. I want nae more. A smile broke up the cold, sad, grey light of the young eagle face. Stern at once and gentle when in repose, its smile was as the summer of some lovely land where neither the heat nor the sun shall smite them. The youth laid his hand upon the boy's head, then withdrew it hastily, and the smile vanished like the sun behind a cloud. Robert saw it, and, as if he had been David before Saul, rose instinctively and said, I'll go on for my fiddle. Hoots, I have broken on of the strings. We mount by till the morn. But I want na fiddle myself when I hear the great water with there. You're young yet, my boy, or you might hear voices in that water. I've lived in the sound of it all my days. When I can't rest at night, I hear a moaning and crying in the dark, and I lie and listen till I can't tell whether I'm a man or some godforsaken sea in the sunless north. Sometimes I believe in nothing but my fiddle, answered Robert. Yes, yes, but when it comes into you, my boy, you won't hear much music in the cry of the sea after that. As long as you've got it at arm's length, it's all very well. It's interesting, then, and you can talk to your fiddle about it and make poetry about it, said Erickson with a smile of self-contempt. But as soon as the real earnest comes, that is all over. The sea moan is the cry of a tortured world, then. Its hollow bed is the cup of the world's pain, ever rolling from side to side and dashing over its lip. Of all that might be, ought to be, nothing to be had. I could get music out of it once. Look here, I could trifle like that once. He half rose and dropped on his chair. But Robert's believing eyes 
justified confidence, and Ericson had never had any one to talk to. He rose again, opened a cupboard at his side, took out some papers, threw them on the table, and, taking his hat, walked towards the door. "'Which of your strings is broken?' he asked. "'The third, answered Robert. "'I will get you one,' said Ericson, and before Robert could reply he was down the stair. Robert heard him cough, then the door shut, and he was gone in the rain and fog. Bewildered, unhappy, ready to fly after him, yet irresolute, Robert almost mechanically turned over the papers upon the little deal table. He was soon arrested by the following verses, headed, A Noonday Melody. Everything goes to its rest. The hills are asleep in the noon, and life is as still in its nest as the moon when she looks on a moon in the depths of the calm river's breast as it steals through a midnight in june the streams have forgotten the sea in the dream of their musical sound the sunlight is thick on the tree and the shadows lie warm on the ground so still you may watch them and see every breath that awakens around the churchyard lies still in the heat with its handful of mouldering bone as still as the long stalk of wheat in the shadow that sits by the stone, as still as the grass at my feet when I walk in the meadows alone. The waves are asleep on the main, and the ships are asleep on the wave, and the thoughts are as still in my brain as the echo that sleeps in the cave. I'll rest from their labor and pain, then why should not I in my grave? His heart ready to burst with the sorrow, admiration, and devotion which no criticism interfered to qualify, Robert rushed out into the darkness and sped, fleet-footed, along the only path which Ericson could have taken. He could not bear to be left in the house while his friend was out in the rain. He was sure of joining him before he reached the new town, for he was fleet-footed, and there was a path only on one side of the way, so that there was no danger of passing him in the dark. As he ran, he heard the moaning of the sea. There must be a storm somewhere, away in the deep spaces of its dark bosom, and its lips muttered of its far unrest. When the sun rose, it would be seen misty and gray, tossing about under the one rain-cloud that like thinner ocean overspread the heavens, tossing like an animal that would fain lie down and be at peace, but could not compose its unwieldy strength. Suddenly Robert slackened his speed, ceased running, stood, gazed through the darkness at a figure a few yards before him. An old wall, bowed out with age and weight behind it, flanked the road in this part. Doors in this wall, with a few steps in front of them and more behind, led up into gardens upon a slope, at the top of which stood the houses to which they belonged. Against one of these doors the figure stood, with its head bowed upon its hands. When Robert was within a few feet, it descended and went on. "'Mr. Erickson,' exclaimed Robert, "'you'll get your death if you stand that way in the wheat.' "'Amen,' said Erickson, turning with a smile that glimmered wan through the misty night. Then changing his tone, he went on, "'What are you after, Robert?' "'You,' answered Robert, "'I could not bide to be left alone when I might be with you all the time, if you would let me. You were out of the house afore I well knew what you was aboot. It's no a fit night.' for ye to be out at a moor by the taken, but you're no the ablest to stand cold and wheat. 
I've stood a great deal of both in my time, returned Ericson. But come along, we'll go and get that fiddle string. Did not you think it would be fully better to go on home? Robert ventured to suggest. What would be the use? I'm in no mood for Plato tonight, he answered, trying hard to keep from shivering. You have an ill called upon you, persisted Robert, and you mount be as wheat as a dish cloak. Ericson laughed, a strange hollow laugh. Come along, he said. A walk will do me good. We'll get the string, and then you shall play to me. That will do me more good yet. Robert ceased opposing him, and they walked together to the new town. Robert bought the string, and they set out, as he thought, to return. But not yet did Ericson seem inclined to go home. He took the lead, and they emerged upon the quay. There was not many vessels. One of them was the Antwerp tub, already known to Robert. He recognized her even in the dull light of the quay lamps. Her captain, being a prudent and well-to-do Dutchman, never slept on shore. He preferred saving his money, and therefore, as the friends passed, Robert caught sight of him walking his own deck and smoking a long clay pipe before turning in. "'A fine night, Captain,' said Robert. "'It does rain,' returned the Captain. "'Will you come on board and have one schnapps before you turn in?' I have a friend with me here, said Robert, feeling his way. Let him come and be welcomed. Ericson making no objection, they went on board and down into the neat little cabin, which was all the roomier for the straightness of the vessel's quarter. The captain got out a square, coffin-shouldered bottle, and having respect to the condition of the garments, neither of the young men refused his hospitality, though Robert did feel a little compunction at the thought of the horror it would have caused his grandmother. Then the Dutchman got out his violin and asked Robert to play a Scotch air. But in the middle of it, his eyes fell on Ericsson, and he stopped at once. Ericsson was sitting on a locker, leaning back against the side of the vessel. His eyes were open and fixed, and he seemed quite unconscious of what was passing. Robert fancied at first that the Hollands he had taken had gone to his head, but he saw at the same moment from his glass that he had scarcely tasted the spirit. In great alarm they tried to rouse him, and at length succeeded. He closed his eyes, opened them again, rose up, and was going away. "'What's the matter with ye, Mr. Erickson?' said Robert in distress. "'Nothing, nothing,' answered Erickson, in a strange voice. "'I fell asleep, I believe. It was very bad manners, Captain. I beg your pardon. I believe I am overtired.' The Dutchman was as kind as possible, and begged Erickson to stay the night and occupy his berth but he insisted on going home, although he was clearly unfit for such a walk. They bade the skipper good night, went on shore, and set out, Ericsson leaning rather heavily upon Robert's arm. Robert led him up Mariscal Street. The steep ascent was too much for Ericsson. He stood still upon the bridge and leaned over the wall of it. Robert stood beside, almost in despair, about getting him home. "'Have patience with me, Robert,' said Ericsson, in his natural voice. I shall be better presently. I don't know what's come to me. If I had been a Celt now, I should have said I had a touch of the second sight. But I am, as far as I know, pure Northman. What did you see? asked Robert, with a strange feeling that miles of the spirit world, if one may be allowed such a contradiction in words, lay between him and his friend. Ericsson returned no answer. Robert feared he was going to have a relapse, but in a moment more he lifted himself up and bent again to the work. 
They got on pretty well till they were about the middle of the gallow-gate. I can't, said Ericson feebly, and half leaned, half fell against the wall of the house. Come into this shop, said Robert. I know the man. He'll let you sit doon. He managed to get him in. He was as pale as death. The bookseller got a chair, and he sank into it. Robert was almost at his wit's end. There was no such thing as a cab in Aberdeen for years and years after the date of my story. He was holding a glass of water to Ericson's lips when he heard his name in a low, earnest whisper from the door. There, round the door cheek, peered the white face and red head of Shargar. "'Robert! Robert!' said Shargar. "'I hear ye,' returned Robert coolly. He was too anxious to be surprised at anything. "'Hold your tongue. I'll come to ye in a minute.' Ericson recovered a little, refused the whisky offered by the bookseller, rose, and staggered out. "'If I were only home,' he said. "'But where is home?' "'We'll try to make on,' returned Robert. "'Take a hold of me. Lay your weight upon me. "'If it were not for your length, I could carry you wheel enough. "'Where's that, Shargar?' he muttered to himself, looking up and down the gloomy street. "'But no Shargar was to be seen.' Robert peered in vain into every dark court they crept past, till at length he all but came to the conclusion that Shargar was only fantastical. When they had reached the hollow, and were crossing the canal bridge by Mount Hooley, Ericson's strength again failed him, and again he leaned upon the bridge. Not had he leaned long before Robert found that he had fainted. In desperation he began to hoist the tall form upon his back, when he heard the quick step of a runner behind him and the words, Give him to me, Robert, give him to me. I can carry him fine. Hold away with ye, returned Robert, and again Shargar fell behind. For a few hundred yards he trudged along manfully, but his strength, more from the nature of his burden than its weight, soon gave way. He stood still to recover. The same moment Shargar was by his side again. No, Robert, he said pleadingly. Robert yielded, and the burden was shifted to Shargar's back. How they managed it they hardly knew themselves, but after many changes they at last got Ericson home and up to his own room. He had revived several times, but gone off again. In one of his faints Robert undressed him and got him into bed. He had so little to cover him that Robert could not help crying with misery. He himself was well provided, and would gladly have shared with Ericson, but that was hopeless. He could, however, make him warm in bed. Then, leaving Shargar in charge, he sped back to the new town to Dr. Anderson. The doctor had the carriage out at once, wrapped Robert in a plaid, and brought him home with him. Ericson came to himself, and seeing Shargar by his bedside, tried to sit up, asking feebly, "'Where am I?' "'In your own bed, Mr. Ericson,' answered Shargar. "'And who are you?' asked Ericson, again bewildered. Shargar's pale face no doubt looked strange under his crown of red hair. Ow, I'm naebody. You must be somebody, or else my brain's in a bad state, returned Ericson. Nay, nay, I'm naebody. Naething at all. Robert'll be home in a minute. I'm Robert's dog, concluded Shargar with a sudden inspiration. This answer seemed to satisfy Ericson, for he closed his eyes and lay still, nor did he speak again till Robert arrived with the doctor. Poor food, scanty clothing, undue exertion, in travelling to and from the university, hard mental effort against weakness, 
disquietude of mind, all born with an endurance unconscious of itself, had reduced Eric Ericson to his present condition. Strength had given way at last, and he was now lying in the low border wash of a dead sea of fever. The last of an ancient race of poor men, he had no relative but a second cousin, and no means except the little he advanced him, chiefly in kind, to be paid for when Eric had a profession. This cousin was in the herring trade, and the chief assistance he gave him was to send him by sea, from Wick to Aberdeen, a small barrel of his fish every session. One herring with two or three potatoes formed his dinner as long as the barrel lasted, but at Aberdeen or elsewhere no one carried his head more erect than Eric Erickson, not from pride, but from simplicity and inborn dignity, and there was not a man during the curriculum more respected than he. An excellent classical scholar, as scholarship went in those days, he was almost the only man at the university who made his knowledge of Latin serve towards an acquaintance with the Romance languages. He had gained a small bursary and gave lessons when he could. But having no level channel for the outgoing of the waters of one of the tenderest hearts that ever lived, those waters had sought to break a passage upwards. Herein his experience corresponded in a considerable degree to that of Robert. Only Eric's more fastidious and more instructed nature bred a thousand difficulties which he would meet one by one, whereas Robert, less delicate and more robust, would break through all the oppositions of theological science, falsely so called, and take the kingdom of heaven by force. But indeed the ruins of the ever-falling temple of theology had accumulated far more heavily over Robert's well of life than over that of Ericsson. The obstructions to his faith were those that rolled from the disintegrating mountains of humanity, rather than the rubbish heaped upon it by the careless masons who take the quarry whence they hew the stones for the temple, build without hands, eternal in the heavens. When Dr. Anderson entered, Ericsson opened his eyes wide. The doctor approached, and taking his hand, began to feel his pulse. Then first Ericsson comprehended his visit. I can't he said, withdrawing his hand. I am not so ill as to need a doctor. My dear sir, said Dr. Anderson courteously, there will be no occasion to put you to any pain. Sir, said Eric, I have no money. The doctor laughed. And I have more than I know how to make a good use of. I would rather be left alone, persisted Ericson, turning his face away. Now, my dear sir, said the doctor, with gentle decision, that is very wrong. With what face can you offer a kindness when your turn comes, if you won't accept one yourself? Ericsson held out his wrist. Dr. Anderson questioned, prescribed, and having given directions, went home to call again in the morning. And now Robert was somewhat in the position of the old woman who had so many children she didn't know what to do. Dr. Anderson ordered nourishment for Ericsson, and here was Shargar upon his hands as well. Shargar and he could share, to be sure, and exist, but for Ericsson, Not a word did Robert exchange with Shargar till he had gone to the druggist and got the medicine for Ericsson, who, after taking it, fell into a troubled sleep. Then, leaving the two doors opened, Robert joined Shargar in his own room. There he made up a good fire, and they sat and dried themselves. No, Shargar, said Robert at length, who came ye here? His question was too like one of his grandmother's to be pleasant to Shargar. 
Do not spake to me that way, Robert, or I'll cut my throat, he returned. Hoots, I mount know all about it, insisted Robert, but with much modified and partly convicted tone. Weel, I never said I would not tell ye all about it. The fact is this, and I'm no up to the line as I used to be, Robert. I have tried it o'er and o'er, but a lie comes rough throw my windpipe new. Faith, I could have lied once with anybody barring the devil. I will not lie. I nay lying. The fact is just this. I could not bide ahind ye any longer. But what, the muckle-long-tailed devil, am I to do with ye? returned Robert, in real perplexity, though only pretended displeasure. Give me something to eat, and I'll tell you what to do with me, answered Shargar. I do not care a scratch what it is. Robert rang the bell and ordered some porridge, and while it was preparing, Shargar told a story, how having heard a rumor of apprenticeship to a tailor, he had the same night dropped from the gable window to the ground, and with three halfpence in his pocket, had wandered and begged his way to Aberdeen, arriving with one halfpenny left. But what am I to do with ye? said Robert once more, in as much perplexity as ever. By till I have tellt ye, as I said I would, answered Shargar. Do not ye think I'm the careless and therefore helpless creature I used to be? I have been in Aberdeen three days, ay, and I have seen you ilk a day in your red goon and right brow it is. Look ye here. He put his hand in his pocket and pulled out what amounted to two or three shillings, chiefly in coppers, which he exposed with triumph on the table. Where got ye all that siller, man? asked Robert. Here and there I cannot war, but I have given the weight of it for it all the same, running here and running there, carrying boxes till and fray from the smacks and doing all things whether they bade me or no. Yesterday morning I got threepence by hanging about the royal afore the coaches started. I looked up and down the street till I saw somebody hine away with the pork manty, Till em I ran, and he was an old man, and most at last gasped with the weight of it gone me to carry. And what do ye think gave me a shilling the very first night? What but my brother Sandy? Lord Rothie? I faith, I knew him well enough, but little he knew me. There he was upon Black Geordie. He's turned an old new. Your brother? Nay, he's young enough for any mischief, but Black Geordie. What on earth guards him go on stravagin about upon that devil? I doot he's a kelpie or a hell horse or something no canny of that kind. For faith, Brother Sandy's nor canny himself, I'm thinking. But Geordie, the older the war inclined, and so I'm thinking with his master. Did you ever see your father, Shargar? Nay, nor I do not want to see him. I'm upon my mother's side, but that's nothing to the point. All that I want of you is to let me come home at night and lie upon the floor here. I swear I'll lie in the street if you do not let me. I'll sleep as sounds Peter McInnes when McCleary's preaching, and I will not ate muckle. I have dreadful poor of aitin, and all that I gather I'll fess home to you to do with as you like. Man, I carried a heap of things today till the skipper of that boat at ye goed into with Mr. Erickson that night. He's a fine child, that skipper. Robert was astonished at the change that had passed upon Shargar. His departure had cast him upon his own resources, and allowed the individuality repressed by every event of his history, even by his worship of Robert, to begin to develop itself. 
Miserable for a few weeks, he had revived in the fancy that to work hard at school would give him some chance of rejoining Robert. Thence, too, he had watched to please Mrs. Falconer, and had indeed begun to buy golden opinions from all sorts of people. He had a hope in prospect. But into the midst fell the whisper of the apprenticeship like a thunderbolt out of the clear sky. He fled at once. "'Weel, ye can have my bed the night,' said Robert, "'for I mount sit up with Mr. Erickson.' "'Deed, I'll have nothing of the kind. "'I'll sleep upon the floor or else upon the door-stand. "'Man, I'm no clean enough after what I've come through "'since I drop it from the window-sill in the gale-room. "'But just lend me your plaid, "'and I'll sleep upon the rug here as if I were in paradies. "'And face so I am, Robert.' You might go on to your bed some time the night besides, or you will not be fit for your work the morn. You can just give me a kick, and I'll be up afore you can give me another. Their supper arrived from below, and each on the one side of the fire they ate the porridge, conversing all the while about old times, for the youngest life has its old times, its golden age, and old adventures, Dougal Sanny, Betty, etc., etc., there were but two subjects which Robert avoided, Miss St. John and the bonny lady. Shargar was at length deposited upon the little bit of hearth-rug which adorned rather than enriched the room, with Robert's plaid of shepherd tartan around him, and an Ainsworth dictionary under his head for a pillow. "'Man, I find myself just like a muckle sheep-dog,' he said. "'When I close my eye, and I'm no sure at I'm no in the inside of your old lucky daddy's kilt.' The Lord preserve me from ever such a fright again as your granny and Betty gave me the night they found me in it. I do not believe it is nature to have such a fright twice in a lifetime, so I'll fall asleep at once and say no more, but as muckle of my prayers as I can mind upon new at granny's no at my leg. Hold your impotence and your tongue together, said Robert. Mine at my granny's been the best friend ye ever had. "'Sep my own mother,' returned Shargar, with a sleepy doggedness in his tone. During their conference, Ericson had been slumbering. Robert had visited him from time to time, but he had not awakened. As soon as Shargar was disposed of, he took his candle and sat down by him. He grew more uneasy. Robert guessed that the candle was the cause and put it out. Ericson was quieter, so Robert sat in the dark. But the rain had now ceased. Some upper wind had swept the clouds from the sky, and the whole world of stars was radiant over the earth and its griefs. "'O oh God, where art thou?' he said in his heart, and went to his own room to look out. There was no curtain, and the blind had not been drawn down, therefore the earth looked in at the storm window. The sea neither glimmered nor shone. It lay across the horizon like a low-level cloud, out of which came a moaning. Was this moaning all of the earth, or was there trouble in the starry places too? thought Robert, as if already he had begun to suspect the truth from afar, that save in the secret place of the Most High, and in the heart that is hid with the Son of Man in the bosom of the Father, there is trouble, a sacred unrest everywhere, the moaning of a tide setting homewards, even towards the bosom of that Father. End. Chapter 7